You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We're so glad you're here with us today. And our special guest is Brent Bishore. He is the founder and CEO of Permanent Equity, a company that specializes in acquiring family-owned businesses in North America. Brent lives in Columbia, Missouri with his wife and three little girls. Brent, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks, Tommy, for having me on. So listeners, today, we're going to get a chance to hear about Brent's fund and this rising movement of permanent equity instead of short-term private equity flips. I absolutely love this. I think it's a great option for lots and lots of founders who are looking to sell their companies. And I love the way that Brent and their team actually approach this. So you're going to hear about kind of a whole new way that private equity is happening. I think it's significantly better for most businesses. So we're going to talk about that. We'll also talk about why do people actually sell their companies? So we're going to talk about what are those common motivations for selling and what is the most important motivation you should absolutely avoid. Brent has helped me to understand that. And then we'll wrap up and you know we'll let you know more about Brent's fund and the way that you might be able to participate. So Brent, let's kick it off. Tell us a little bit about permanent equity. What is it you do and the types of businesses that you actually buy? Yeah. So, I mean, technically we're, we're private equity. We're a very unusual form of private equity. And in many ways, we have somewhat of the opposite characteristics of traditional private equity. So maybe to frame up the discussion, traditional private equity buys with an intention of selling the business within a fairly short period of time. So kind of three to five years, typically is using as much leverage as they can get to, to put on the business. So, you know, sort of max debt. And sort of the goal is to reduce cost or to grow the business dramatically within that short period of time and then resell it to somebody else at hopefully a much uh, you know, bigger price. So we take the exact opposite view, which is we want to operate these businesses like the families did that made them successful in the beginning and it led them to success. And so we buy with no intention of selling the business. We typically use no debt in our transactions. We like to keep the leadership in place of the businesses that we acquire, treat people really well. You know, we think about long-term win-win relationships, not just for the seller and the buyer, but also for the leadership teams and the employees and the communities and the suppliers and the customers and maybe even the regulators, depending on what the industry might be. So, you know, we think about sustainability long-term is only guaranteed if there's a win for everyone involved in it. So we try to be, I guess it ends up being a kinder, gentler form of private equity. We think there's a better way to do business. Absolutely. And I would argue not just kinder and gentler, but also uh, long term, a better results producing version. Because, you know, one of the things that I constantly see in a traditional private equity transactions is they're taking just such a short term view of the business. Like, how do we maximize this resale value in three to five years? That often does not align with this long-term balanced approach to how do we build an enduring company that's great for our customers and great for our people. So I just absolutely love the way that permanent equity is approaching this whole space. And I think that people looking to sell their companies ought to be thinking about that as well. Very rarely do I encounter a founder that just says, I want the biggest check possible and I don't give a rip what happens to my employees. I'm so thankful. Truly, I have yet to encounter that individual. I'm sure they're out there. 
every founder I've talked to or every friend that I have that owns a business has said, I would take less money if I knew my people were going to be okay. So your approach, I think, does a great job with that. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, it's impossible to make good long-term decisions with short-term capital, but there's just constraints that short-term capital puts on you. You know, if you think about it, if you're only going to work with somebody for a couple of years, you're going to treat them differently than if you plan on working with them for 15, 20 years, right? Absolutely. If your time horizon is three to five years to sell the business, you're not going to invest in the business in a way that you would if you were going to own it for 10, 20 years. The nice thing is for us, like we just get to do what the families have already done. I mean, we've literally never been a business where, you know, people have a short time horizon. I mean, by definition, these businesses have been around for 20, 30, even sometimes 100 years. I looked at a deal this morning that the business is 115 years old, right? You look at a business like that and they didn't get to be successful by levering the business up and flipping it from one owner to another owner. It's been the same owner. It's been debt-free the entire you know, life of the business. And what we're doing is just, again, trying to continue on the legacy and trying to honor and respect that in the future. I love that. You know, Brent, some of our listeners are a little bit less sophisticated than others, and they may not even know the difference between kind of a venture capital investment versus a private equity type investment. How would you define that difference? Yeah. So venture capital is early stage capital. So it's typically going to be a small minority investment. It's going to be sort of rounds of capital as the company needs more capital to, to grow and scale. It's going to be a growth style investment. Um, you know, in theory, the, the venture capitalist is going to, is going to be helpful, but they're really, I mean, maybe they're taking a board seat, but they're not working day in and day out in the business. And the sort of the responsibility that they have is one of many, right? I mean, one of many, you know, a large portfolio in the fund. One of many in terms of stakeholders at the table, in terms of the decision making of the company. And again, it's a very early stage, you know, young in the life cycle of the business, typically unprofitable businesses, and obviously a heavy bent towards technology or maybe, you know, medical tech or, you know, biotech or whatever the thing would be. But, you know, technology typically is involved in that. Private equity is much more late stage. So these are mature companies that have gone through scale already. These are companies that have typically profits, so a significant amount of revenue and profits. And the most typical style of investing is taking a majority stake. So private equity firms almost always take a majority stake. There is a blend called growth investing, which is sort of a hybrid between VC and, and private equity, which is, you know, you're taking a significant, you know, when I say significant, like, you know, 40% stake, and maybe you're allowing the owners to take some chips off the table. So, you know, more of a secondary transaction, but the primary goal of the growth investment is to help grow the business, right? Over a short period of time and then to resell it again. So, you know, I would say those are kind of the three styles. So you have, you know, VC is very early stage, private equity is very late stage, and you have kind of growth investing that's it's kind of sits in the middle. Permanent equity only does, at least today, we don't have to stay there, but historically we've only done private equity style investing. Makes sense. So I think what I heard from you, Brent, correct me if this is wrong, but I think maybe on the venture side, it's more you're looking for growth. So you're putting your money in, you're investing, you're not expecting kind of immediate cash flow. You're expecting that money to grow as those companies grow and mature. Whereas on the permanent equity side or the private equity side, a lot of times you're buying a company that already is profitable. There's already some cash flow inside of the transaction. So you may actually get some some distributions or profits sent to you even in the first year or two. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And the vast majority. So the way that we're structured as permanent equity, we often return distributions back to our investors above and beyond the amount that we can reinvest at high rates of return and high predictability in the portfolio. So that's definitely within the style that we're investing. 
Excellent. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about the aspect of selling your company. We'll do that today. But before we do that, Brent, I'd love to just take a big giant step backward and to have our listeners hear a little bit about your story, because I'm always fascinated to hear how people actually get where they are. And it's not like you started out as a kid dreaming, someday I'm going to go buy all these businesses. (laughs) And yeah, here you are today, uh, just doing an absolutely incredible job. So, you know, where did you start and how did you get here? Yeah, well, I appreciate the kind words. I'm not sure actually how good of a job we're really doing. I feel like it's always a relative versus absolute measuring stick, right? I feel like that compared to what we could do, I feel like we've still got a long ways to grow. Spoken like a driven entrepreneur. (laughs) Well, word entrepreneur's gun is butt handed to him enough times to humble him. So to kind of go back to the beginning, I mean, I joke that I'm the Forrest Gump of private equity because I never worked at another firm. I've never taken an investing class in my life. I can barely open up Excel. So, you know, I guess don't tell anybody, you know, I feel underqualified for the job that I have. Yeah. So I grew up in Joplin, Missouri. So Joplin, if you actually see, here's the map of Missouri. Joplin's like right there. And Columbia's like up there. So this is where I live now. That's where I grew up. And that's about four hours away from one another. Missouri's a, a decently big state. Yeah, I grew up in Joplin, Missouri. Went to school on the East Coast to get uh, for my undergrad. Majored in politics with an emphasis in poverty studies. So nothing related to uh, to what I do now. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Somebody said you should either get your law degree or your MBA. And I said, well, I, if I just cover both of those bases, then I should be fine. So I went and applied to the joint program at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri here. Attended that, met my wife who was getting her PhD and we just never left. Uh, I started a business and that didn't go great, but then led into starting another business and then a number of businesses kind of around that core business. And then the really the jump from what I would call entrepreneurship to more of what I do today happened when I had a mutual acquaintance say, hey, you should meet this guy. He got left at the altar for the second time. You should talk to him. And I took that to mean I should try to buy his business. That was not what he intended. And you know, I'm 38. I don't know. Maybe I look 25, 27 now. I probably looked about 14 then. And you know, the guy rightfully said, you know, two grown men have tried to buy my business. You know, why do you think you'd be able to buy it? And I said, well, sir, I'll figure it out. And long story short, ended up buying the business and did well with that. And that really opened up my eyes to what was possible and that there was a, you know, a real need amongst smaller business owners to transition their business. Didn't have a son or daughter or relative that they could transition it to. The management teams couldn't buy them out and they're really stuck. And so, you know, this is back in 2010. So 12 years ago that that happened and really it opened my eyes. And so started going down the path, acquired a number of other businesses on my own. And then uh, we raised outside capital in 2017 and then raised another large uh, bit. So raised 50 million in 2017, then raised $300 million at the end of 2019. So pretty big leap from being, you know, on my own, my own capital had just rolled it forward. You know, one of the nice things about living in Missouri is cheap cost of living and didn't have kids whenever I first bought that business, didn't have a lot of expenses, lived pretty frugally. So I was able to just roll my own capital for quite a while and then went pro and found a wonderful group of investors who believed in the vision. We locked up their capital for three decades, which is, I think, the longest lock in, in uh, private equity history to our knowledge. And then have a really unusual fee model, which we're happy to get into if you're curious about, but uh, basically much more aligned in interest than traditional private equity. And uh, we love it and our investors love it. And it's not without some challenges, but we think it's a far better model and has served us well. So yeah, that's fast forward today. And we've got 
Let's see, we've got 11 companies, really coast to coast, lots of different offices, portfolio company offices. The vast majority of us, the parent co, permanent equity level, live and work in Columbia, Missouri. And uh, we love it here. And yeah, that's about it. Well, there's a lot I want to unpack from that. And actually, I want to go very way back to the beginning. The first company that you tried to launch, you said did not go well. So what type of business was that? Yeah, that was an event marketing company. You got to go back to 2007. 2007, the hot thing. This is pre-social media kind of. Um, this is, you know, it, it's hard to even, you know, time warp back 15 years, right? But it's um, uh, event marketing was like, you know, experiential marketing was like the hot the hot thing. And um, I had a friend, his wife said, hey, I want to launch this business. I was uh, kind of desperate for a variety of reasons to get out of school. And so I said, hey, I'll I'll, uh, I'll do it with you. And uh, I didn't know what I was doing and it showed. And she, 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 she was her first time founding a business as well. And it showed. And I joke that, you know, we know about all the mistakes because we've made them. And I think this is part of the ethos of permanent equity that is really interesting and differentiated from private equity is we're all operators. We actually don't even consider ourselves to be investors. I mean, yes, we use the investment of capital to allow us to work in these companies and lever our time against the resources that we've been entrusted. But, you know, we don't consider ourselves investors. We consider ourselves operators. And, you know, we have a, an experience that is pretty unusual in the sense that literally everyone here has operated a business or been a part of a small company. Literally no one here has been in sort of traditional investment track. And so, you know, we just come at things from a very different angle based on that experience. I love that. And, you know, certainly my business failures are probably where I've learned the most. I, I always like to tell people I became an overnight success after over a decade of grinding. Uh, and it wasn't my first company that took off nationwide. It wasn't my second. It wasn't my third. It was actually my fourth. And so learned a tremendous amount from each of those along the way. You know, after that event marketing company, so, you know, you wound that up, the next company actually went pretty well. So what was that? Yeah. So we, we'd actually, through the event marketing company, worked with ad agencies. You know, when, you, when you're young and you sort of look and say, okay, well, what do they do and what do they get paid and how much do I get paid and what do I do? And saw that agencies, ad agencies got paid a lot more than we did for our perception was a lot less work and a lot easier work. Now, it turns out apparently when you haven't done something, things look easier. And so we got into it a little more difficult than we imagined, but yeah, it went well. We, we grew a lot. We started bringing on, you know, I'd say, you know, a combination of local and regional clients. And then that spun up kind of a variety of ancillary services around that agency. So we've developed a software development firm, a research firm, and a film company. You know, I would say it was a good local success, right? Like, you know, I would have done done fine financially. It, it would have been sort of a grinded out. I mean, the agency services business is a tough business to be in and you have to work your tail off to do okay. And base rates really matter in what you do. And so I would say that's a lesson that I learned is, is you know, if you want to look and see what does success look like, look at the people who are successful and, and ask yourself if that's what uh, the life and resources that you want. And in the agency business, it was certainly an upgrade from the event marketing business uh, for sure. But it was certainly not something that I ended up long-term wanting to do. And so about that time, you're realizing all this and that's when this opportunity to buy out the person who'd been left at the altar twice before came about. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it kind of came out of <laughs> came out of nowhere. And what type of business was that? 
So it's a business we still own today. It's called Media Cross. It's a military recruitment firm. So it's in the marketing space and they work with, they do marketing, but they do marketing for recruiting people into organizations. So they work with the military, they work with universities or two primary groups that they work with. And they're great. We have a wonderful relationship with them. It's been a long time. It's been crazy how long it's been. feels like in some ways it's been, you know, a blink and then in other ways it's been forever. But yeah, it was a deal that, you know... <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. You got to understand. So, you know, I get done with, maybe I can go a little more in depth. Initially, I made an offer on the business that was way lower than what the owner wanted to accept. And he said, there's no way I'll ever sell it to you for the price that you want to pay. And I said, no problem at all. I hope you do well and hope we get to stay in touch. And I didn't really think about it for seven months. And then seven months later, he called me up and said, look, uh, we just renewed our largest account. Business is in great shape. I'm exhausted. So you can have it for the price you asked for, but it's got to be all cash 60 days from now closing. I said, okay. I said, great, you know, let's do it. And then I literally Googled, I'll never forget. I got the phone. I was kind of in shock. I'm like, okay, I guess this is something I should focus on. And I literally Googled how to buy a business. And at that time, I mean, this is 2009, 2009, there's not a lot out there. This is pre search fund stuff that's come about. This is, it felt like the wild, wild west, to be honest. And so anyway, so I called my local attorney and I, you know, I said to him, I said, Hey, you know, have you done this before? And he's like, well, I mean, I bought real estate. You know, how different could it be? And I was like, no, no, sounds good. We'll just work through it. Okay. And he's like, he's like, well, we need to, you know, we need to, we need to do some due diligence. And I like, literally I'm like, great. What's a due diligence? You know? And he's like, well, we ask questions. I'm like, oh, I can, I can ask questions. Great. Why? Why are we asking questions? You know, it's like it was like I didn't even I didn't understand the process at all. I didn't understand the legal process. I mean, this shows you how bad it got. So I, you know, got an SBA loan, leveraged the accounts receivable from the existing business. I mean, you know, I asked my newly married wife. I said, "Hey, I need you to sign this personal guarantee thing," and she was like, well, "What is this?" And I was like, "Just don't worry about it. It'll be fine." She's like, "What if it doesn't go fine?" And I was like, "Well." I'd be bad. Let's go and get it done. That's what the bank needs. So I got an SBA loan. We're getting ready to close. And it's about a week before. And I'm starting to, you know, now fast forward to making the announcement and, you know, operating the business. And I start running kind of through the math. And I said, wait a minute, how am I going to make first payroll? Because if he takes all the cash out of the business and I put all my money to give to him to buy the business, where does the money come to make payroll? And so I called him up and I said, hey, maybe I missed something, but like, where do you think the money comes to make payroll? And he goes, well, from a working line of credit, like a working capital line of credit, right? You got one of those, right? And I said, no, I didn't even think about What's it. What's that? And I said, yeah, I said, I didn't even think about it. And he goes, you don't have any working capital for the business? And I said, no, I don't. And he was like, well, we've got a real problem because the business is going is to go under. People are not going to get paid if you don't have the capital to do this. And so literally I had to borrow $150,000 from him to make the first payroll. <laughs> Unfortunately, he was willing. Oh, well, I mean, it came at a cost. I mean, don't get me wrong. It wasn't out of the generosity sure. and kindness of his heart that he did it, but um, but it was to get the deal done. But I'm just telling you, I mean, Tommy, like, you know, I always say if, if I can end up buying businesses, anybody can, because I had no idea. I had no idea what I was doing. Well, this is a little bit reminiscent of how I actually got into venture capital. And I don't think I've shared this story on our show yet. So what happened for me, Brent, you know, I'd spent 20 years managing money for really high income brain surgeons. That was kind of my niche. Well, they'd brought me these opportunities for medical investments, you know, dozens per year for a couple of decades. And I always said, no, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Well, 
now all of a sudden one's on my desk and it's a brand new super metal for the human body. Hmm. I mean, the first new metal for the human body in the last 40 years. And I'm looking at it saying, okay, I'm actually interested for the first time in two decades. I'm really interested. So I get on the phone with this company. I'm talking with their CEO and he said, you know, this would be huge. You could solve a big problem for us. We want to focus on building this business. We don't want to mess with investor relations. You know how to handle that stuff. Could you guys just set up a special purpose vehicle and take over investor relations for us? And I said, Yes, absolutely. And then just like you, I got off of that phone call. The very first thing I Googled, what is a special purpose vehicle? <laughs> I just agreed to set one up and I don't even know what it is. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, we have a great team. We figured it out very, very quickly. But, you know, that was our first dipping our toes into the venture capital space. And that's turned into now, you know, a healthcare venture capital fund. So got to get started somewhere. So listeners, Brent and I both want you to hear that. You have to start somewhere. And we talked about this on another show that by definition, you cannot get great at something without first stinking at it when you first start. That is the law of nature. You cannot get great at something unless you start when you stink at it. Yep. So you got to start somewhere. And yeah. you're hearing from both Brent and I uh, stories of getting in way over our heads. But I think the thing you hear over and over from the people that make it work is their tenacity, but also the great team that they're surrounded by. And I know, Brent, you have that at Permanent Equity. How many people do you have on the team now? I think there's 15, 16 of us who hired some recently. Wow. Yeah, it's a small team now. I mean, in the investing business, that team's not small, but relatively to, I mean, we've got almost a thousand employees in the portfolio, so it, it feels small compared, wow. to the, compared to the companies we work with. You know, one of the things I just want to go back to though, Tommy, is you know, to people who are starting, I could not agree more that you, the only way to get good at something is to do it. I would also say though, that I think there's a temptation that you don't realize how long you have to do something to actually get good at it. You know, there's that curve that, you know, people say it's like initially you think you know what you're doing and then all of a sudden you realize you don't. And then it's like a slow build, you know, out the other side. You know, one of the things that I think was a huge blessing to us is we didn't have a lot of resources for the better part of a decade. Right. And so we had to scrap and claw and sort of beg, borrow, and we never steal, stole anything, thankfully. But, you know, we didn't have resources to sort of grow beyond our, talents and beyond our, our skill sets. And I think that was a really important thing that we you know, went slow to go fast eventually. I see a lot of people today, you know, these young whippersnappers, and by the way, those young whippersnappers are typically in their 30s and about my age too. So you know, when I say that to them, there's less experience in this area. But I see a lot of people who are, you know, really talented, far more talented than I am, far more educated than I am, have a different set of experience and they've done a great job at, but they haven't been in this area. And what I see them doing is raising a lot of money and quickly building a team and trying to go big in a way that I think is ultimately counterproductive to their success. And I think that's one of the things I would just caution people is I think there's a real value in getting into, if you're passionate about buying smaller companies, 
look, I'd say follow that passion and, and get in. You know, the best thing you can possibly do is quit your big, prestigious, impressive at a bar to the opposite sex job and go grind at, at a small business. Go work for somebody and go work for somebody who's not like the best small business owner. Go work for something that's hard and get a good education and what not to do as well. And then, you know, dip your toe in the water and maybe buy some equity or buy a small company and go and work in it and operate it. Like, don't be an investor. In my area of the market, you know, I almost consider it to be a negative when somebody's like, oh, I'm an investor. Because I mean, look, there's so much work to be done to grow these companies that like you have to have an operator mindset to be successful. The investment side is super easy. I mean, look, Tommy, you guys are doing far more sophisticated investing. I mean, our math can be done on the back of a napkin, truly. It doesn't get better in a spreadsheet if it's not good in a napkin. And so I think the high humility view towards uh, really hard things, they may be simple and straightforward, which I would argue our area of the market is incredibly straightforward. And there's a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of fun to be had doing it, but it requires a lot of counterintuitive wisdom that the only way you can get it is by paying you know, time tuition and sometimes money tuition. Mm-hmm. For sure. Hopefully people are remembering also, there's a lot of lives involved there are people working in these businesses that this is their livelihood. This is how they feed their family. And the investors I have the most respect for are the ones like Brent, that they get that day in and day out that, you know, this is not just purely money. There are thousands of lives involved and really feeling some responsibility to those families, you know, and that just builds an incredible culture and then makes it so that people want to sell their company to you and not to somebody else that's just going to gut these families' livelihoods. I think it's an incredible kind of virtuous cycle that is allowed to be built up. So really important. Well, you know, one of the things Brent has educated me about is why people actually think about selling their company and really that it can kind of be classified into seven pretty decent reasons to sell your business. And then one that might be tempting, but is a terrible reason to sell your business. So let's dive into those. Uh, We don't have time today, listeners, to go real deep into any of them. But I think just even hearing them, maybe that will resonate with some to say, you know, that's me. Gosh, maybe I should think about, maybe this is a time to start thinking about how I'm going to transition. Yeah. I mean, when we started thinking about this list, I mean, this list came from a book that we wrote called The Messy Marketplace. And we wrote the book as just kind of the first five to seven hours of conversation that we wanted to have with really every seller. And one of the base reasons, you know, we always ask about and we really want to understand is what is the motivations for selling the business, right? And everyone's got kind of a slightly different story. Everyone's got a unique situation they're in. But, you know, what we found out is there's kind of eight, seven, what we call good ones and, and one, you know, pretty negative one eight reasons why people sell. And when I say them, it's going to be obvious, but you know, this is over a long period of time for us that we talk to I mean, literally thousands of sellers. And I mean, I would start with maybe just the, the personality or skill set. You know, a lot of people will say, look, I got this business to the point where it is. We really feel like we've hit this ceiling. We're not going to be able to grow this thing for whatever reason beyond where it is. Maybe it's a risk tolerance. Maybe it's the fact that we literally just don't know how to do it. But whatever reason, we want to basically grow faster and we want to bring in somebody as a partner where we can keep doing what we do, but we want to bring in a partner that can help us grow. Second reason is exhaustion. I just feel burnt out. I don't enjoy what I'm doing anymore. I'm stressed out. And and by the way, anybody who has operated a business gets this. (laughs) It is not an easy thing. I, I joke often that 
I mean, it's like a knife fight, right? You just, you know, you try to get out of bed in the in the morning, not get stabbed that day and get back into bed. You know, another analogy is like eating glass, right? I mean, it's just, it's a tough, tough deal and people just get burned out. I would say that for all of these, we have, you know, many sellers that we've talked to that fit in each of these buckets. I was just going to say that exhaustion category. It sounds like the seller that you talked about that called you back seven months later and said, I'm just exhausted. If you can do this thing in 60 days, let's do it. Exactly. No, I mean, I think ultimately, you know, people reach a breaking point where um, they have to kind of walk up to the line a couple times. And then ultimately they say, hey, this is not worth it for me to continue going forward. And then the question is just, what are your options for not doing it? A lot of people get locked into, unfortunately, operating their business a lot longer than they want or having to shut it down because there's no buyer. That's a major problem. You know, kind of a third area is the freedom, right? So they want freedom to play with their grandkids, to go on trips. And for whatever reason, they don't feel like that that's the case. You know, health, either their health or the health of, uh, of loved ones is another category. Pretty straightforward and obvious. And unfortunately, that pops up more than we wanted to, which kind of goes into the next category, which is obligations. They just have whatever you know obligations on their life. And maybe it's, like I said, a sick relative. Maybe it's a financial strain of something else. And they really just need to gain the liquidity from the business to help take care of you know, a challenge they have in another area of their lives. Risk tolerance. They just don't have the risk to tolerance to do this. I mean, you know, we bought a number of businesses from people who say, look, at my age and stage, I just don't have the stomach to you know, keep taking the risk that we are. Really, the seventh final motivation that, that we consider to be a good one is legacy. And, you know, I want to find somebody that can help support this for the long term. And you'd be surprised at how difficult that is to find. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, most buyers, especially as you kind of go up market, are going to care far more about the dollars and cents than about the people. And so finding somebody who can carry on the legacy, whether that's the name of the business and not subsume it up into a larger organization or, you know, just treat their people really well. You know, it's a good motivation to sell. So those are kind of the seven. And then the last one that's not good is timing the sale. And, you know, we occasionally, I would say this isn't the dominant reason, but we really get, we run across it decently often. It's somebody who's like, hey, look, I'm trying to get a good deal. I want to sell this thing for far more than I think it's worth. And I think the market's hot right now. And I want to just get out of it. And I want to take that money and I want to reinvest it back into another business. Look, a seller is always in a far superior position of knowledge to the buyer. And there's no problem with getting, you know, fairly compensated for the work that, you know, decades of work that in, in most cases that people have put in. The challenge is just when you're trying to, you know, basically screw over the buyer, <laughs> it certainly sets up an adversarial relationship. And, you know, we unfortunately have had this happen a couple of times where we've gotten down the road with somebody and figured out that they really, they just were going to try to pull one over on us. And that's no fun. And we encourage people to just be honest and transparent about that. And we try to treat people with care and respect and you know, we ask for the same in return. So Brent, this is a slight sidebar, but we have a, a lot of listeners that actually own financial firms. Hmm. And I've heard from a lot of them, you know, hey, our, our industry's in such a strong multiple right now. It's a seller's market. You know, you could get a multiple today that you're never gonna get five years from now, 10 years from now. Is that what you're talking about when you say don't let the timing drive that decision? Yes. Maybe we could go back to the sort of the first principles thinking on this, which is it is always more profitable, always more profitable to retain your business, not sell it and continue to work in the business. Always, really, no matter what the multiple is. So it should never be the dominant reason why you sell, right? The dominant reason you sell should be one of those seven other factors. And then look, of course, if people are paying more then maybe it edges you slightly to do it now versus in a year or two or three, right? 
But what I would say is if you want to work in your business for the next 20, 30 years, the dumbest thing you could do is go sell your business. I mean, if you've got a great business, don't sell it. Like if you want to work in the business, don't sell it. Like you literally will never find another opportunity, especially when you think about the tax consequences of it, right? You're going to pay a bunch in taxes. You're going to have a lot less money after the government takes their share. And then you're going to take those resources and then invest it in something that you don't know as well, or try to start something again, which we all know how difficult that is. People think it's reverse psychology. It's not. I mean, we always try to talk people out of selling your business to us. We want to make sure that they're really committed to it because of how difficult the process is. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Brent, we're actually going to get to move into my favorite segment of our show. So it's really a chance I get to ask two questions. The first is the question I think everybody wants to know. And what that really means is it's the question I want to know. And then the second question is actually the question that I think all of our listeners want to know. So here's my question for you today. You mentioned an innovative fee structure that your team has set up for your fund. And I would actually love to have you talk about that. How does that work? Yeah, well, so maybe we could, um, I think it's always helpful to frame it against what the sort of the industry standard is. And so how people in private equity get paid is you typically raise a fund. So you have assets that are under your management in the fund. So AUM is the name assets under management. It's kind of the name for that. And you get 2% typically is the is the going rate of you get to charge as a fee. So this is the fee to travel and to operate your fund and, you know, pay your people and for you to get paid sort of your salary out of the fund. You typically get 2% of the assets every year in, in fee. So, you know, if it's a $100 million fund, you're getting $2 million a year to operate your fund, right? If it's a billion dollar fund, you're getting $20 million a year to operate the fund, right? But you can sort of, it's very easy to, you know, take the AUM and then multiply it by the fee. Then once your investors, so they give you their money and you invest it, once the investors have had their money returned back to them, plus some sort of typically hurdle rate. So it's six, you know, four, six, eight percent, something like that. Once that's returned back to them, then you get to share in the upside. So this is after their money's returned, they're, you know, sort of the, you're playing with house money. Then you get to share in the upside. And that's typically 20% of the upside. So the investor gets 80 and you get 20. The challenge with that model, and this is something that, that we had had offers before we raised our funds to take on outside capital, and it was always in that sort of traditional fee structure. And the challenge is the incentive is only to do the largest deals, right? You want to do the biggest deals. You want to raise more capital. It's always to go up market. Two, you have very little of your own skin in the game. And because really what you're doing is you're living off the fees. And if you happen to make money on the promote, right, on the carry is what it's called, on the upside that you get to charge on the 20% that if you make money for your investors, that's sort of a bonus. That's, you know, sort of the cherry on top. But really what you're doing is you're living off the fees that you can count on. And so it's to drive more and more AUM. It's to do larger and larger deals. It's all those things. And we just never want to play that game. We want to be investors first. We don't want to be you know, capital allocators. We won't, don't want to deploy capital, right? We think about it as being precious. It's a precious resource that's, that's been entrusted to us for us to steward. And so we just didn't want to have the pull. Like, I feel like I have, you know, I have weakness towards wanting to win. And if you give me a game that the incentives are set up poorly, I'm going to try to win at the wrong game. And I think the biggest fear in my life is that I do win at the wrong game. And so we decided to turn that fee model completely on its head. So we take no fees of any kind, no reimbursements of any kind. When I say none, zero, we take no cash coming from the LPs to the GP on an annual basis, except for once we invest the capital. So we call the capital we invested in and the investors get the first 8% raw investment coming out of the portfolio. And then we take a split above that. 
with a catch up. So basically what it looks like is we share in a higher percentage of the free cash flow of the businesses, but there's no risk that we are, you know, sort of fee gathering and there's no risk to the investors if we do nothing. So an example of that is we raise our fund in 2019 and 2020. I don't know if you know this, but the world got kind of turned upside down for a little while. Just a little. Yeah, surprised you, but we didn't do a deal in 2020. And most funds didn't do a deal in 2020, to be honest. It was a really tough year to get anything done. So we got paid zero in that year from our investors. Our investors paid nothing. We didn't charge any fees. We didn't, you know, there were no reimbursements. There's nothing. And so for us, it was perfectly aligning. We said, hey, there was nothing to do. I mean, there's plenty to do. We worked our tails off that year, but there was no new investments to get done. And so we said that we don't get paid anything. And then when we do deals, it's really de-risk to them. I mean, they're getting the first raw 8% return out of the portfolio. So it's a really nice deal for them as well. So that's the fee model. It's it's uh, it's a, not only unusual, it's unique. I think we're the only ones in the world doing it that way. And a lot of people think we're idiots, which we probably are, but that's okay. When you say raw, the first raw 8%, what do you mean by that, Brent? Yeah, well, so it's typical in most funds to have some sort of, like I said, a hurdle rate that you have to get over, right? And 8% is a pretty normal hurdle rate. The issue is that 8% return back to the investors is sitting underneath the fees and all of the reimbursable expenses, even sitting below fees that are taken from the portfolio back up to the fund. So, you know, how private equity gets paid is not only you know, do they charge the 2%, but they'll typically charge board fees and other fees from the companies up into the fund as well, or to the members of the fund to sit on the boards. So you're sitting underneath all these layers of fees, and then you get your 8%, which basically increases the risk profile of getting that even that 8% back out. For us, there's none of that. That's great. I've always thought, you know, I came to this fund space as an outsider as well, And I've always thought of it mostly as an asset because I'm just not inhibited by this like, well, this is the way it's always been done mentality. And it made no sense to me, Brent, why, you know, there are so many funds out there. They were making their money from their management fee and not from their shared profits or carry or promote whatever we want to call that. It just made no sense to me that funds were not making the bulk of their revenue from their profitability. And, you know, as you describe it, just makes a lot of sense. That's what you were experiencing as well. So I love that model. That takes us to, you know, really my final question. The real question that I think our listeners want to know is really our, you know, a call to action. What are those types of sellers or founders that would be right to contact you at Permanent Equity? I'd love to know kind of that profile. Who are the business owners that are thinking about selling that you at Permanent Equity actually want to speak with? And then what's the best way for them to get in touch with you if they're out there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would encourage anybody go on our website. It's really rich with information, you know, just permanentequity.com. We have our kind of our criteria on there. So if you're listening, you don't need to like jot a note on your phone. You can just go to go to our website, but I'll kind of pair it what's on there, which is, you know, we're looking for typically three plus million dollars in earnings. So this is not revenue. This is what drops to the bottom line. We'll go a little bit below then if the business has a trajectory that's you know easy to see that it's above that. You know, beyond that, we want a, a seller who has reasonable expectations and is well-versed in sort of what to sell. I mean, if, if you don't know if this is your sort of first time down the road, we'll be honest with you. And we actually have a deal calculator on our website to show you kind of the range of outcomes that we think that might be possible. But we typically don't like to try to convince people to sell their business. We don't want to convince people to sell it even for a price. Like what we want to do is we want to pay a fair value. We're going to pay what, you know, sort of the market bears. You know, we, we're not trying to take advantage of anybody. We want to pay a fair price, but 
if somebody comes and, you know, we often have, oh, hey, I, you know, I talked to my buddy the other day at the golf course and he sold his business for 15 times, blah, 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 blah. And we, you know, the inflationary pressure of, of after golf multiples is incredible these days. Let's put it that way. So absolutely. We try to have people kind of re-anchor their expectations around what is more normal in the market. Look, crazy deals do happen. I'm not saying they're, you, you know, your buddy's a liar, but probably he's a liar, to be honest. Anyway, I never want to, you know, it's kind of like when you ask me what their compensation is at a bar, it's always like three times what their actual compensation is. Kind of same, same principle. Yeah. I mean, I would say that the characteristics that are more on the soft side is, you know, we want a business that has been built with care. And so we want a seller who cares who they sell to. If you don't care who you sell to, then we're probably not the best fit. There'll be somebody who can pay you more money out there and, you know, sort of pillage the business. Yeah. Gut your employees and... Yeah, cut the cut the employees, cut the reinvestment back in the business, lever it up. I mean, all the stuff that's the sort of the easy, straightforward tricks to generate a financial return, you know, that doesn't correlate with an operating return. We don't want to buy businesses like that. We want to buy businesses that are being respected and that were built in a way that is thoughtful. And so, yeah, I would say is if you work for a business that's like that, if you own a business that's like that, we actually have a pledge on our website too. We can tell you how we, you know, we treat you with care and get back to you quickly. And if we're not the right fit, we try to be helpful in terms of helping you find the right fit. Of course, at no cost or fee or anything like that, just to be helpful and pay it forward. Yeah, I'd say reach out. I mean, we're really easy to get a hold of. My email's readily accessible. My colleague, Emily Holdman, who leads our front end deal process, her email's all over our website. We've got a contact form. We're on social media. We're, you know, <laughs> we're about the easiest people in the world to get in touch with. So I would say is, you know, go on the website, read about us. We have a lot of materials on there about how we think about the world and life and business and see if we're a good fit. If we are a good fit, we would love to chat with you. Excellent. I'd also throw out, if you're just not sure yet and not ready to make actual connection yet, Brent's book, The Messy Marketplace, Selling Your Business in a World of Imperfect Buyers is available out on Amazon. You can get it shipped to your front door or grab it on your Kindle as I did. And it's just a great resource to help you understand some of the just initial things you need to be thinking about before you pull the trigger. You know, I've been down that process and it's, it is, it's a tough thing to think about selling this baby that you helped build over decades and what that's going to look like. And so I love the thoughtful approach that Brent and his team take and uh, can certainly vouch to our listeners gotten to interact with their team. They're just absolutely professional, wonderful people, exactly what you expect out of Columbia, Missouri. Just incredible salt of the earth people. So definitely connect up. Brent, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Very, very meaningful. I know our listeners will appreciate it as well. So thank you. Hey, thanks, Tommy, so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc. We'll be right back.